0: Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cawthorn. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. This is part two of the two parter, looking first at Paul from Romans 3 about how we're justified before God. It's by his grace through our faith, not by works, otherwise, people could boast. But then James comes along and says something in James 2 that some people think might be contradictory to Paul, and yet we're going to see today how it's not contradictory, it's complementary. And James is talking about faith that does justice. So that's what we're going to look at today. I would like to read you verses 14 through 24 from James chapter 2. So if you'd like to just listen, you can, or if you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to open whatever form of the Bible you've got with you. James 2, starting with verse 14. So what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, well, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. And you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. And that's God's word from James chapter 2. So you can see on first blush that reading through that passage, we might start to say, I don't know, James, you kind of sound like you're talking a little bit different than what Paul had told us in last week's message about Romans chapter 3. And yet, we're going to see by unpacking this little passage that we just looked at, why we can definitely tell that they're complementary and not contradictory. This is something that I've shared with you months and months ago, but I've referred to it from time to time because it's a great analogy. I want to bring it back up again. And that is there are two ways to do away with an acorn. Remember that? So what is it that you're seeing here in the picture? Sledgehammer. That's one way you can do away with an acorn. Would it make the acorn suitable for anything after you're done with it? Nah, it would just be smashed to smithereens if you crushed it with this hammer. That's one way to get rid of an acorn. Another way uses this implement. And what would you do with this implement if you were going to change that acorn somehow? Plant it. That's right. You would dig a hole in the ground. You'd put that acorn in there. So what happens to the acorn? It's no longer an acorn after a time. Why? Because it has fulfilled its purpose. (laughs) It turns into something completely different than an acorn, and yet it's very fruitful and it's very purposeful. So what we see that Paul and James have in common and what they're sharing is exactly what we see in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant by doing everything that the prophets had said he was going to do so that the New Covenant fulfills all the purposes that God had intended for them to fulfill. So they didn't just throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, we're going to chuck everything related to the old covenant completely. He actually fulfilled the old covenant. In fact, look at this. Jesus even kind of alludes to this basic analogy in his own person. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies... It remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. So you can see that Jesus even sees himself as that thing that needs to be dead, planted, but it rises as something completely different and fulfills all the purposes that he was supposed to fulfill. So Paul, I'm going to do a lot of this back and forth so you can see these two together. Paul talked about how to receive this justification or approval before God. Same word for righteousness was justification. So that we can stand righteous before God because he puts his cloak of righteousness over us. We're wearing his cloak because the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. And that's what happens when we accept his grace by faith. James says, now, I'm going to show you how to demonstrate that you have already received it. That's what he's saying in this passage, which may not be abundantly evident at first blush. James is basically saying, okay, it's only lip service if you can say, yeah, I got faith. I trusted God 14 years ago, and I know that because I have a membership card. It's still in my wallet. I'm a card-carrying member, and so I'm okay. I've got my ticket punched. I'm going to heaven. And he would say, yeah, but fast forward that 14 years, is there any evidence outwardly through your life that would show that you are different now than you were when you first made that choice to accept God's grace through faith? Does your life have any difference that would be outwardly demonstrated? Are you kinder and gentler? Do you have more love for other people? Do you have the fruits of the Spirit? Are you hungry to look into God's Word more to see what Christ is like so He can start changing your life through the Holy Spirit? Or do you look exactly the same as that time when you just signed a card and went forward in an aisle and said, I got my ticket punched." Because James would say, if you're only giving lip service, that's not genuine transformational faith, and it's dead faith, and you never had it in the first place. James 2.24, we need to see a word study and then use one of his other phrases in this passage for context so this becomes much more clear. Are you hanging in there with me? All right, I get excited about word studies. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. We need to look at what that phrase means. Now, if you look at that from James' perspective, he's saying that other people can consider your life. If I look at somebody's life out here, I'm going to be carefully weighing what I see and the evidence I see in their life. That's what he means by considered. If my life is being considered by you and you can consider the evidence that my life is showing you, then my faith will be considered righteous because you can see the outward examples that I'm showing that there was an inward transformation because of that free grace that I received. The term is, this is great Greek. This is going to be great at your next party. When you know this, you can sound so smart. You'll be the smartest Greek speaker in, your, in the room the next time you share this. The term is justified is dikaiotai. And it means to show to be righteous or to be vindicated to be justified. So if I were to be put on trial, and they said, we're going to try you to see whether or not you have enough outward evidence to prove that you have a transformational faith in your life, then I would say, okay, well, yeah, dikaiutai. I have been shown or vindicated or I'm justified, not because I earned my salvation, but because the free salvation that was given to me freely by Christ Through his grace, he imparted it. I didn't have to do anything for it. Christ did all the work for it. But because of that, now I've been transformed and my life is starting to show that transformation. And so it is shown to you. I'm vindicated in my righteousness. I didn't earn it, but it's being vindicated. Your justification, which we know from Paul is by grace, is revealed to others through your actions. So it's about receiving it from Paul, revealing it from James. Receiving, revealing. Got those two things? A little juxtaposition there. In other words, here's a simple way to put it. The works back up the words. If somebody were to say, yeah, I'm going to back up the fact that I am a Christian because my life is giving evidence to the fact that God has been transforming me, those works should back up those words. For example, if somebody were to say, you know, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I was a member of the National Jugglers Association, and I joined it back when I was 18, and you would say, "That's pretty cool." But honestly, I've never seen you juggle." And you could say, "Yeah, I know, but I've got the card. I've got the membership card. It, it shows it right here, And you pull out this old faded, crumpled-up piece of paper that says, "So-and-so," and you know put your name there, is a member of the National Jugglers Association. And you can say, "Yeah, well, that's nice, but can you juggle?" And so you would have to reach around and try to find something. And because I forgot the apples that I was going to bring today, I went and borrowed these from the preschool department. And you would say, well, um, maybe, I don't know, I might have been able to juggle just a little bit. And uh, so, spoiler alert, I was never a member of a juggler's association. (laughs) Couldn't juggle my way out of a brown paper bag. But if you were to look for evidence, you would say, I need to see something outwardly demonstrated before I would actually believe that statement that you just made. You see what James is saying here, as opposed to Paul? Now, we look at verse 19, and this is where James gets really serious. He says, you say you have faith, or you believe that there is one God. Notice that I highlighted that. You believe that there is one God. Well, I believe that people can climb Mount Everest. Does that mean that I've ever climbed Mount Everest? Not on your life. But I can believe that that's true. I can believe a lot of things that are true, and yet I don't actually have evidence to show that I have taken a step of faith to embrace that truth in my own life. He says, yeah, it's good for you that there is one God. I'm glad that you say that. That's good. You're on the right track. Good for you. But even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. You know what this means about demons? We've got some demons who are doctrinally correct, even more so than some professing Christians, and I dare say even more so than some professing pastors. They're correct in their doctrine, but that does not mean that they have embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior and therefore have changed the way they're behaving toward God. So yes, you can have an intellectual belief in something without having taken a step of faith so that you're being changed by that thing. Two words, and I'm using these Primarily because they start with the same letter, but also you're going to see why with this other illustration, it starts to make sense a little bit more too. Pronounced exactly the same, ascent versus ascent. So if you were to say those words out loud, I might have to ask you, what do you mean by that? Because I wouldn't know unless you gave me context in the sentence to say, have you made the ascent up Mount Everest yet? I would know you're talking about the second one with the C because that means a climb. You're actually doing something. You're climbing up. Uh, When Christ ascended to be with the Father, same word, same root word, means that he's going up. So there's some sort of movement, some sort of action taking place there. Whereas ascent with two S's just means an intellectual acknowledgement. So I can give ascent to something without having to climb into action. See the difference there? Now, an ascent, expression of agreement, ascent, a climb. Let's say that Jack Clark is, we're really going into the whole skill sets today. Uh, Jack Clark is a tightrope walker from way back. He is actually a distant seventh cousin, three times removed, of the flying Walenda family. You didn't know that about Jack, did you? But he's got a card that proves it. It's in his wallet. And let's say that Jack, who is dazzling the crowds, decides he's going to put on a show at the Niagara Falls. I understand that a couple of you get to see the Niagara Falls this summer. They're spectacular. Our family has been there before. And there's a cable that's stretched from the Canadian side, A, all the way over to the American side. And it's uh, tested, and it's nice and taut. And even then, you know, there's going to be some play in that. So there's going to be some movement in that cable. But Jack is going to be going all the way across, right over the roar of those huge falls. And he's going to just tightrope walk. And people are astounded by that. They're cheering. He goes on one foot. He hops up and down. People are cheering some more. He switches feet. They're cheering some more. He does a little jig. They cheer some more. Then he says, now, do you want to see me push a wheelbarrow? And they all go, yeah, push a wheelbarrow. So he gets a wheelbarrow that has sort of a pulley for a wheel. So it kind of goes around that cable nicely. And he's doing this and Pushes the wheelbarrow, and he's balancing, and people are just going nuts over that stuff. So he gets all the way over to the American side. He hops off onto a little platform there. Ta-da! Everybody applauds. He grabs a microphone, and he says, Now, would you like to see me push somebody in the wheelbarrow? How many would like to see me do that? Several thousand hands shoot up in the air, and you can hear this gigantic roar. Yeah! Push somebody in the wheelbarrow! That's awesome! Then he goes, Okay, who wants to volunteer? All those hands come right down real fast. Why is that? Because they gave assent to S's, to the fact that they know intellectually that Jack is capable of doing that because they've witnessed amazing things from him. But they're unwilling to make the climb, the ascent with a C, up from where they're standing onto the platform and hop into that wheelbarrow. Now do you see the difference of the two words? The difference is, yes, I've seen it with my own eyes. A lot of the people that saw Jesus perform miracles would say, Wow. I've never seen anybody do that. I mean, he healed a blind man by just licking some spittle into some dirt and turning it into mud and going in his eyeball, and the guy can see again. That's astounding. I've never seen anything like that. I watched him heal a guy with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and some people were upset by that. Not sure about that. But anyway, he healed this guy, and his hand was completely restored. I watched him heal that guy who was let down through the roof. He was paralyzed one minute, and he's picking up his mat and doing a jig, walking out the building the next. I've seen it. I know it's true. But I don't think I'm ready to get in that wheelbarrow. That's what James is talking about. He says, if you have a real faith, you're going to climb up out of where you're seated, and you're going to climb into that wheelbarrow. And you're going to be willing to say yes to the thing God asks you to do including dying to self when it's difficult. Demons came out of many people, says in Luke 4, 41. And they were shouting, you are the son of God. See, they were doctrinally correct. They even knew that before some of the other people who were seeing Jesus do these miracles got it. The demons got it. They knew who he was. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. They knew it. They were doctrinally correct. They had assent to that. They were intellectually absolutely correct with that. Did they climb up and hop into the wheelbarrow? No. (laughs) Not on your life. So someone who has agreed with last week's message, let's say that somebody tunes into YouTube because they're available on YouTube, and they are watching that message or listening to it, and they get to the end of the message, and they think, wow, That is challenging, and I'm so grateful to know that I don't have to do something to earn God's favor. It's not about works. All I have to do is to say, God, I trust you, I put my faith in you, and your free grace is given to me so freely. That's great. I agree with that. But now fast forward five years in that person's life. If you could evaluate them based on what their life is like, and if you saw absolutely no change whatsoever, they looked exactly like all the rest of the world around them, and they weren't getting any closer in their growth spiritually, they weren't reading their Bible, they weren't hanging out with people who are reading the Bible because they don't really care what Jesus says because they got their ticket punched. What would James say about that person? It wasn't that the salvation didn't take. The salvation was available to them. They never took root. James would say, you have a dead faith. It was dead from the beginning. It never took root. So yeah, you had lip service. That's not the same thing as climbing into the wheelbarrow. That's kind of what Jesus had way back at the beginning of his ministry when he was sharing lots of parables. And he did the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Remember, there were four different soils. I'm going to do the real abbreviated version here. These are the first three. There was the path. People had walked on the path. You know what happens when it gets walked on? It becomes hard pressed down. It's very difficult for seed to take root there. And what happens to that? Well, it doesn't take root. Same thing about the rocky ground. The birds come in, grab it, fly off with it. They get a little granola snack that afternoon. That didn't take root. How about the thorns? It fell among the thorns. It looked like it was starting to kind of put up some sort of a little leafy something or other, and then the thorns come in there and choke it out. Same thing, though. None of these first three soils allowed that seed to take root. What was the soil type that allowed fruitfulness? It was that good soil. Some had all kinds of percentages of growth in terms of the fruitfulness in their lives. What was the difference? The root. It was able to take root. Paul says, this is available to you, this justification is available to everybody, James says, but not everybody chooses to let the roots grow deep. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon from the Tabernacle, uh, the London Baptist or London, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1800s. Tremendous guy. He he had this several thousand people in this great cathedral. And uh, he didn't believe in microphones. And he could just preach to the best of them. Thousands of people at at a whack. God did an amazing work through Spurgeon. And he had this analogy that's kind of based on this whole idea about the root. Let's say that you plant a tree in an orchard and it's an apple tree, but you go out season after season, there are no buds on the tree, there are no leaves on the tree, there are no apples on the tree. What can you conclude? He said, well, it's not the apple's fault, not the leaves' fault. It's not that the leaves could have made it live, but the absence of the leaves is proof that that tree is dead. You can judge a man by its fruit. That's another biblical phrase. Basically, he's saying, okay, we can look at somebody and say, oh, man, they were a believer for a time, and then they fell away, so he must have lost his salvation. And James says, no, he never had it in the first place. If you understand what these Romans 3 and James 2 is talking about, that's exactly what they're saying. Never had it to begin with. No fruit means no root. Never happened. Never started. That's why, by the way, this was not in my notes, but I just feel prompted to share it. Uh, A director of missions in Arizona had a wife that was a sweet, godly woman, at least by outward appearance. Everybody thought she must have been a strong believer. Strong believer. Her name was Martha. And Martha went to a particular service one time when a guy was preaching on this kind of message. And Martha went forward. Now, you don't expect godly women who've been walking with Christ all their lives to walk forward during an invitation like that. She walked forward, and somebody was asking her, what did you do? What kind of decision did you make? She said, you know, I think I finally understood for the first time in my life the difference between just lip service faith and real faith that allows the roots to go deep. She says, I've never truly, completely relinquished my life into Christ's hands. I've never fully been able to say, yes, God, to everything. I write you a blank check, carte blanche, whatever you have for my life. If you say it, I'm going to do it, even if it's difficult. I've never gotten to that point until today. So Martha, who by all appearances to other people were thinking, everybody thought, oh, she's got to be just walking with the Lord forever. But she realized that there was something different about the life of a person who says, I'm going to abandon myself into God's care, knowing that his will is better. And so they're seeking God's will above all. So Paul and James actually agree. They don't disagree at all. James 2.24. So you see, and I like the New Living Translation because they get it right based on this study that we've just looked at. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone, not by lip service. You are revealed or shown to others to be right with God, to have that justification, that righteousness by your outward appearance based on the transformation that took place because of your free grace that was given to you back at your salvation. So, Mark 2, 1 through 12, Jesus knew this even in his own life. He's a model for us. That same incident that I just mentioned, just the guy was let down through the roof, four friends let this guy down on a mat, and the Pharisees were sitting over in one corner. They were skeptical because they were always skeptical. And Jesus, the first thing he says is not, you are healed. First thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And we're thinking, Why did you say that? Your sins are forgiven. Why didn't you just heal the guy? You can tell they're here to to get their friend healed. And the Pharisees were even thinking that. In fact, they were thinking even worse. They were upset. They thought that Jesus had just blasphemed because they're thinking in their own hearts. They hadn't vocalized it yet. They're thinking, who is he to be saying your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. And we're going, okay, they're doctrinally correct. (laughs) Even the Pharisees were doctrinally correct, just like the demons are doctrinally correct. And yet they were upset at Jesus for doing what he did. But then Jesus says, so which is easier, for you to say your sins are forgiven or for you to say, pick up your mat and walk? But so that you'll know that I have authority to forgive sins. And he says to the man, pick up your mat and go home. And the guy does so in front of everybody. And they were mind boggled. It says that they gave glory to God. Many people worshiped him. They were saying, we've never seen anything like that before. Why is that? Because Jesus knows the difference between lip service and action. And he put his action behind lip service because it, anybody could say, I absolve you of all guilt. Who knows if you've actually been saved or not? Jesus says, so you'll know I have authority. Bang. And his actions backed that up. Verse 20, James says, okay, let me give you one more illustration. And he's speaking to a Jewish audience. So they're going, okay, what's that? He goes, your father Abraham, as an example of somebody reckoned as righteous because of his demonstration of faith. He wasn't accepted because he earned anything, but he, got, he had faith and that faith was demonstrated by his obedience. What was the obedience? It was huge. That was when God said, take your only son, Isaac, go up the hill and you're going to sacrifice him. Never been done before. It was a weird request. It was one that Abraham probably even thought, wait, what? But what does Abraham do? He Takes the wood. He takes the donkey. He loads the donkey up with the wood. He's got the fire starter, whatever he's got. He takes the knife. He takes his son. There's no animal. There's no sheep. There's no ram. There's no goat. And so they get all the way up there, and his son Isaac's going, Dad, uh, you got the wood. You got the fire. You got uh, where's, the, where's the animal? And Abraham says something that's so indicative of this kind of faith. He said, God will provide. Wow. And we're thinking, how? You know, and that's why I'd like to ask him. This is one of my marginal notes in my Bible that I want to ask Abraham when I get to heaven. Did you know God was going to do something different? Did you think he was going to raise your son from the dead if you killed him? Did you know he was going to do something about a substitute like a ram? Or were you just willing to go head over heels, complete trustworthy? I'm going to follow you no matter what without knowing what the outcome was going to be. I kind of think he didn't know the outcome. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a true test. I don't know. I'm going to ask him that. But at any rate, God supplied that wonderful substitute, the ram that was caught with his horns in the thicket. He hears the noise. Thankfully, he did that because he even had his knife raised, ready to kill his own son in obedience if that's what it took. Wow. And James says, that's the kind of faith we're talking about, folks. Even though we might not see the end result yet. If God is so clearly speaking to you, especially now today through his word, because that's how he speaks the loudest. And if God is really speaking to you about something, if you have true faith, even though you don't know the, the full outcome, are you going to follow through and do what God's asking you to do? Not just assent, intellectual knowledge say, I agree with that, but an actual ascent, climb into the wheelbarrow. True story. Another thing that's not in my notes, but I think it's applicable and I think it's practical. Uh, About a year, year and a half ago, I was doing some long-distance counseling with a guy who was down in the Kansas City area. He was a relative of a relative. So he's not my relative, you know what I'm saying, but he was kind of removed. You don't know him, so I can share this. I'm not going to use his name. He was going through what was leading up to a very contentious divorce, and it was getting nasty. And you know in divorce situations, it can be awful. It's just like a war. And he kept asking for good counsel and advice, or that's the way he was wording it, you know, I'm really looking for counsel. But then when I would give him what I was thinking was good biblical counsel, the only thing he would say in response to that is, I think I agree with that. And then I would ask him two days later, did you do what I asked you to do in response to what you asked me to do? And he goes, well, no. Basically, he would do the opposite of what I was telling him. I would be really, really direct with him, and I would say, you need to stop pushing because you're pushing too hard. You need to let her come to you. You need to do something or else. He would go right out, and the first thing he would do is camp out. 2 a.m., camp out on her driveway, waiting for, I mean, he was obsessing over this stuff. I said, you've got to stop. Stop this. If you're really trusting God, you've got to pray, stop, back up, quit trying to upset. You're not going to change this thing in your own time and in your own way. He didn't do that. So he had an assent. He would say, I think I agree with what you're telling me but he clearly did not do what I was asking him to do if he was looking for godly counsel. Assent, but not assent. So Paul agrees with James. James would agree with Paul wholeheartedly in Romans 6, where Paul says, so should we sin some more so we can get more grace? No, absolutely not. That's so foolish. You need to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's what Paul is saying there. And James would said, yep, I agree with that, Paul. Because if you're really alive in Christ, you're not going to be doing those things. You're going to be doing these things because Christ's Holy Spirit is transforming you, and you look different now than you did before. Galatians 5, same thing. Paul would say, you're free to serve, but not to sin. So don't sin by serving your fleshly natures. Serve the spiritual nature in you now because you're no longer having to live by the flesh. You're living by the Spirit. So bear the fruit of the Spirit, and he tells us what those fruit look like. Love, joy, patience, kindness, all those good fruits of the Spirit. James would agree with all that. So both these things are true. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works. That's true. I know it to be true. Absolutely. But this is also true. Your justification before God results in a faith that provides evidence because they're both true. They're complementary, not contradictory. This is where I pull out some things about angles and triangles. If you have a couple of angles, and if one angle is complementary to another, what does that mean? It means that they fulfill one another. They, they complement each other in a way that makes them whole again. If you have something that makes it a complete right angle, for example, at both of those angles, the whole triangle is perfected through that. It's made perfect, exactly right. It's not, it doesn't mean that one angle says to the other, no, you're really acute today. That's not the the different spelling from complementary. That's with an I. Complementary, not complementary. Okay, so maybe you can complement that angle, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about these doctrinal statements by Paul and James are complementary, not contradictory, which means you put them both together, they complete each other. Where else do we see that in the Bible? Oh, like in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Covenant is complemented with an E by the New Covenant. Jesus fulfilled that. He is the acorn that was planted rather than smashed. He didn't throw out the law and completely trample all over it and destroy it. He fulfilled it so that now we don't have to live by the law because we can have a relationship with him and therefore go even above the law because he is above the law because he is a complete embodiment of everything. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So the old covenant and the new covenant all come together together. All that continues to wrap itself together because they are complementary, not contradictory. Here's my challenge to all of us. If we can imagine in our lives, what might my life look like five years from now? Assuming that some of us are still on the earth. Some of us may be like Enoch and will be translated. I doubt it. Most of us wind up having to die before we go to heaven and some of us may be in heaven five years from now. That's just a reality from looking at the actuary tables. Well, if I'm still around, what will my life look like? Am I going to be working diligently to study, to show myself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so that God's Holy Spirit can continue that transformational work in me, not because I'm earning justification from him, but because I'm hungry for more of him so that I can understand his will and be obedient in doing his will. And I pray so. I really pray so. True story, as I wrap up, I see evidence that the old nature is still having a tug of war, even in my own life, and I don't want to present this perfected look of a pastor who's got it all together all the time. Sometimes I need to share with you that God's still working on me too, and it was not too terribly long ago when our AC stopped working, and we were trying to prepare to have people come live in our house for two months, and I thought, this is not going to be good, because it's going to be a hot summer. And I was upset by that. And rather than saying, God, I trust you, whatever you're going to do in this situation, I know you're going to see us through. I was frustrated. I was having one of those rucka, rucka, rucka kind of days. And then I thought, well, maybe it's the thermostat and maybe it's those little batteries that you have to put in there for the backup thing. So I'm going to have to, but we're out of batteries. Rucka, rucka. So I was upset some more. So then I'm going to go up to CVS, which is around the corner and buy some new batteries. But as I'm in line at CVS getting the new batteries, I'm standing there, and I knew that I had a few uh, loose bills in my wallet. I'm looking in there to say, do I have enough? Yeah, I have enough for the batteries. But the woman in front of me was looking really frazzled. She was nervous. She looked like she was maybe in her mid-70s. And she had a box of Cheerios and a couple of little things that looked like she was getting just enough stuff to get her through the night. And she had several different wads of bills in different places. And you know, because of my frustrated mindset, the first thing that crossed my mind was, yeah, couldn't you have kind of lined those up in your billfold so you know where they are instead of dragging out? Here's three bills, they're wadded up. Here's a bill over here it's wadded up. Here's one at the bottom of my purse. And I, I started to get a little bit miffed by that. And something, you know, that Holy Spirit checking in your spirit that he's going, eh, eh, eh. That's not a Christ-like attitude. And then I heard her say to the man... I'm so frustrated because my my husband's in the hospital and he's got COPD and he's been in a coma for three days and he finally came out of the coma today. And I'm thinking, oh man, she's gone through so much and I'm over here worried that she didn't line up her bills appropriately. And then she says, and uh, I I didn't know how much the parking was going to be and I spent some of my bills on parking and then I was in a hurry so I just jammed stuff in there. I'm sorry I'm taking so long and she apologized to me. And I said, no, no, no problems, don't worry about it. It turns out that she was about 485 short for buying the bag full of stuff that she was there. And I looked at my wallet and I realized, I've got an extra $5 bill. I can do that. I said, ma'am, don't worry about it. Here's a $5 bill. You're okay. Take take your bag and you know, and God bless you. I'll be praying for you. And she just looked so shocked. She looked at me like, God bless you. God sends the right people at the right time. And I thought, man, lady, if you just knew. <laughs> Five minutes ago, if you knew what was in my mind, you wouldn't be sharing this kind of praiseworthy report for me. But it also showed me that if God puts us in the right situations at the right time, he's still working on me. And he puts me in situations sometimes to reveal what a cad I am at heart. And how easy it is for me to step away from that fellowship with him And start putting all of my stock in my circumstance instead of trusting God. And I thought, man, I'm this old now. (laughs) Almost said it. I'm almost 62. And I'm still struggling with these things. And I understand now that when James is saying, what's your life going to look like in five years? I got to say, God, you need to keep working on me. Because I am continually a work in progress and I keep falling and I keep falling and keep falling. And that's why Paul says, yep, that's why I said all have fallen short of the glory of God. So both things are true. Yes, I'm saved by grace. And yes, God still wants me to press into him closer and closer so he can keep that transformation going. Because, man, I desperately want people to be able to see my life five years from now and say, that guy really loves Jesus. Yeah, he can be a little rucka-rucka at times. And yes, he can get frustrated. And yes, he can kind of even grate on his wife's nerves some days. But he is still pressing in and he still desperately wants to be like Christ. That's what I desperately want. And I think that God knows that in each of us. And so he just provides wheelbarrow loads of grace to say, now you're forgiven. Keep on the same path. He who began that good work in you will see it to completion until that day of salvation when we get to see him face to face. Let's keep doing that together, shall we? And let's keep encouraging each other to stay on the path. Well, let's pray. Father, I, I kind of I feel like sometimes I need to come clean and admit that I don't have it all together because I realize that I desperately need all of my church family, my brothers and sisters in the faith, wherever they may be located to give me the kind of encouragement and strength I need so that I'm staying on that straight and narrow path. Not because I can earn my salvation. I'll never lose that. You've got me and you're holding me and nothing can ever separate me from the love that you've bestowed upon me so freely. But I don't want to lose that fellowship. I don't want to pull apart in a way that, I, that my life is so anxious all the time. And I sense that it's easy for me to get there. And so I just want to continue to press into you And to keep reading your word and to being open to what your Holy Spirit has for me and that I'll be obedient to what you ask me to do. Even when it gets scary, even when I don't see the outcome clear before me, I don't want to just have an intellectual assent about the truths that I read in your word. I want to climb into the wheelbarrow. And I pray that others will also want that same thing and that we'll climb in there together so that we'll continue to ascend knowing that we'll stand before you one day and that we'll be able to say, man, I'm a sinner saved only by grace. And Jesus will say, I put my cloak of righteousness righteousness on them, so he's okay or she's okay. And we'll be admitted into your presence, not because of our good works, but that other people will have seen Christ because of our good works that give evidence of the salvation that we already have. And I pray that you'll help us not to fret over even the doctrine, that we'll just worry about the relationship. Because as we get to know you better, the doctrine takes care of itself. Because you're the fulfillment of all doctrine. You're the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, and you're the fulfillment of our whole lives. And you fulfill every need in us as we get to know you better. We want to do that, Jesus. Thank you for what you're going to do in our lives Change us continually, I pray in Jesus' name.